everyone, my name is Tessa and welcome to Alt-G, a podcast where we are taking a look at democracy through an intergenerational lens. Over the past few months, I've been talking with people from across the United States to better understand how generations are sharing civic life. Now, the notions of belonging and intimidation in democracy are not new, though we may not have always used these exact words for it. Since the beginning of the United States, we have been defining and redefining what it means to belong by who we allow to vote, to own land, to decide where resources go. Essentially, we've been having this debate for centuries, so it shouldn't come as a surprise that throughout my interviews, these ideas surfaced again. In the modern era, you can see this in everyday moments, like in who we see running for office, in which people we choose to talk to about important issues, or even in the ways in which we talk to one another. A great example of this is what has now become a common response that we hear in political debates. It usually goes like this. Go back to where you came from, or if you don't like it, you can leave. Essentially, telling a person or group of people that their ideas do not belong and neither do they. When we talk about belonging, what we're really talking about is that deep sense of connection to the people and the land where you live. The type of connection that leads you to believe that you should, can, and even ought to change what you see in your community. Today we'll be exploring where that comes from. We'll be talking to two individuals from very different backgrounds to better learn what it means to them to belong and how they found their voice in democratic life. My first guest is Liz Morrison, a young mother and student who only recently began her first step into community organizing. Like many Gen Xers and Millennials, she experienced the dramatic shifts that happened to how we belong in democracy as a result of the invention of the internet and social media. Uh, my name is Liz Morrison, and I, I live in San Francisco, and I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so I grew up in a very uh, conservative, evangelical environment, um, evangelical Christian, that is. Um, so my upbringing, that's my background. I worked in clean tech entrepreneurship for the past five years. Well, Liz, it is wonderful having you here today to share a little bit about your experience with civic life. I have come to learn that everyone has a very different experience when they are being introduced to democracy or civic life. Do you want to maybe start by sharing a little bit about how that was for you? There isn't much on that where I go to school. Um, so I would say that the only way that civic engagement, democracy, founding of America even comes into play in education in the public school system that I grew up in uh, was like a really short class for part of the year in I want to say like seventh grade or maybe even freshman year of high school. We had like an American government class our freshman year that basically just did like a brief scan of early American history, like the foundation of history and like nothing to do with civic engagement, nothing, nothing at all. So there's like, there's, zero of that in public school. 
So yeah, we studied the Civil War and the Confederacy more than we studied any other part of the United States history. So I mean, anything that any kind of civic engagement you learn from your parents and where I come from, that's basically uh, vote red down the line. That's like the extent of it is you need to go and vote. And when you vote, just vote for anybody who has an R next to their name. Wow. Yeah. You highlight something that I think is so crucial to remember. It's so different today. You know, if you think back even 10, 20 years ago, that you really only were introduced to democracy and where you might fall in it from your parents or your school, maybe a little bit from the news, but really you were limited to what was right in front of you. Has there ever been a period in your life that you felt like you were really most civically engaged? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that right now is the most civic engagement. Um, the process of, I would say that before the internet, <laughs> uh, anything, like there aren't any resources, you know, there's nothing to inform you of other perspectives other than the ones that you're immediately surrounded by. Mm -hmm. So you don't know, I mean, so before the internet, I mean, even when I was in college, the internet was still arguably in a nascent stage, you know, like it, Twitter was just invented. Like I, I was a communication major in my senior year of college. We were talking about how, oh, this new social media called Twitter, like how that's going to change things, you know? And so. I remember when Facebook came out and it was like. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, I, yeah. When I got a Facebook, it was, you have to have somebody invite you to Facebook. It, yep. it was in, invite only. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I feel like that's changed the democratic process the most because you're able to actually like get different perspectives on everything, you know? And so I would say that now I'm the most civically engaged. Yeah, that is something I've heard a lot from other people that they are most civically engaged now. And when they were younger, they weren't engaged because they either didn't have the time or interest or just had no idea where to start because they had no resources, like you mentioned with your school. Our school was like so, it was, it was weird. Like you had to be in like a white elite class. I was not white elite in my, I mean, my, the school that I went to was 75% black. There's, there's definitely a split between like the old money because it's, it's a South. So there's like okay. white old money and then there's like poor white. And I was like somewhere in between, I guess. Like I wasn't, I wasn't like super poor, but I wasn't like as wealthy as like the wealthy people in my school. And they were the ones that were all involved in like student government and things like that. And whereas like, I never even heard of like an invitation for me to even participate in student government. Like it, that wasn't accessible to anybody except for them for some reason. And they would have like, oh, we're going to do voting on some sort of, you know, thing having to do with the school. I never saw any voting. They never let me vote. 
So it was really weird because it's like, how do things even work at this school? Because it was like the democratic process was just completely owned by the white elite. So I would say that here in San Francisco, because my husband's from here, and he went to a private school here. And so his educational experience was completely on the opposite side of the spectrum of mine. And so, he, you know, here, like civic participation is just like life force. Like you live and breathe like <laughs> civic participation in San Francisco. <laughs> on top of like everything else that I'm doing this semester, I decided that it'd be a good idea to like get together a like group to to write a petition for the city to reopen playgrounds because there's a bunch of mad moms on the internet that I'm a part of that like are like what the heck why can't we have our playgrounds open like so I, I'm like okay everybody's just sitting around like complaining about this I'm gonna get a group together I'm gonna like write a petition draft it have everybody like take a look at it then we're going to like then some people have been offering that they have connections with like recreation and park department or city hall. And so I've been entering into this whole discussion of like, who should we bring this to? What should be our next steps? So I've never been involved in community organizing, but apparently now I'm a community organizer. <laughs> <laughs> so Francisco like, is a habit of making community organizers, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So how, how has that experience been? Like, how did you first get involved with, like, knowing this group of, did you say angry moms? Uh, oh, no, they, they aren't angry. It's, it's, it's just like, a, it's a, you know, some people, people that are more upset about something on the internet tend to have the largest voices, you know? So it's, there's <laughs> tens of thousands of moms on different Facebook groups in the Bay Area. I saw that there were a lot of other people that were too. So I just made a big post and was just like, hey, other places have guidelines and have reopened. New York City's playgrounds are open and they were hardest hit by COVID. So if New York City's playgrounds are open, why aren't ours? And like tons of people are like, yeah, why? Let's do something. Thanks for doing something. And then, you know, and my husband's like, welcome to activism. A lot of people will get behind your idea and you end up having to do it all anyways. He was like, involved in activism in high school and college and like just wasn't anything that anybody it didn't exist where I come where I came from and I think that activism that we're seeing now and that I've been seeing online in the places in like Atlanta where where I used to live it's all because of the connections through social media yeah that, that's fascinating. It sounds like in, in Georgia, there was just no accessibility, no transparency to even know what was happening or who was making decisions or how it was happening. Mm -hmm. Social media, obviously, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's mm -hmm. a lot of points, but there's also a lot of transparency where you yep. things, and that's kind of changed the game. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Who, uh, have you, who have you been working with to sort of figure out how to do this activism that you're doing now? Are you like speaking with your, your husband to figure out kind of who to talk to, how to do it? Are you researching online? What is that? Um, I honestly, I don't have any time, extra time to commit to it. I like basically my post was like, 
I will get this started, but I cannot drive this forward because I literally like I, I have a toddler and I am full time in grad school. So I just like I don't have the bandwidth and, you know, there's mm -hmm. COVID and it's raining ash outside. So <laughs> it's just a few things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. just a few things. Yeah. So I, I, I basically left it to I, I just I got emails of women that were interested in driving this forward. I put them into an email list. I started the email list. I started some Google Docs for some ideas. I drafted a petition and was like, here's this, you know, like this woman said that she knew this person. This woman says that she knew this person. So like, however you guys like, like give me input on the, the doc, like who you think that this needs to go to, what you think would be the best because it's, it's tapping into the collective knowledge you know so I don't have to look up and research all that stuff myself because I am now surrounded by so many people that ha it's the brain trust you know and that's what's so awesome about groups these Facebook groups is that it allows you to tap into collective brain trusts and utilize like everybody's talents and knowledge and background you know and again that was something that was completely there was not that resource at all when, when I lived in Georgia. So, you know, if you had an idea of like, dang, this sucks. Like, I wish that I could change this. You feel like you're literally the only person who thinks that because you don't have any way of connecting with or even finding other people that feel or think the same way as you. I mean, if, if I could sort of paraphrase what we've been talking about so far, it sounds like that your experience in Georgia of, you know, this like elite, you know, white group making so many of those decisions, like that still angers you and propels you today, mm -hmm. what you're doing. Like you still see it happening despite mm -hmm. some parents coming forward and that mm -hmm. motivates you. Hmm. And I might even go a step further and say that it sounds like your husband grew up with this sense of belonging and that he could make a difference in the community. And for you, your experience in Georgia didn't create that sense at all, that you hadn't really found that sense of, I see something's wrong, I can do something about it, and I have a group that I can go to for support. You didn't really get that until you moved to San Francisco. Um, are there any ways that you see as opportunities to create more of that belief, especially in Georgia? How, how do you think you can get that there? Um, I mean, right now, it's holding elected officials accountable, you know, it's, it's holding, it's one, basically fix voter suppression. Um, where I'm from and so I would say that like the only way that I mean the only way that democracy is going to survive and thrive is if people actually are able to um, vote and not be suppressed against voter suppression is just so rampant throughout the country and especially I mean it was just really abundantly clear during our um, election of the governor. Um, I mean, the fact that the guy who is in charge of voting in the state was running for governor 
like, and that wasn't a conflict of interest that was illegal is absolutely mind boggling, you know? So I think that's a number one, number one issue that affects the future of any kind of democracy in the US. And then to holding the people that are elected accountable, you know, everybody has a responsibility to make sure that the elected officials are representing the public and that the issue is, is that that in itself has made young people uh, complacent when it comes to democracy because they feel like what they do doesn't make a difference because everything is rigged anyways. So, I mean, the perspective on that isn't going to change until and unless like private interests uh, are separated from the public interests and public governance. You know, so like separating those two and demanding that those get separated is like the number one thing that is in the best interest for our democracy that citizens need to be working towards. Do you see any, any barriers to that right now, being able to sort of hold our elected officials accountable? You mentioned, you mentioned money. That's, that's a good one. Yeah, special interests. Any, any other ones that you see as sort of barriers to that? Obviously, voter suppression, uh, there's a second. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on a, yeah, I, I think that it really comes down to where the money is and where it's flowing because, you know, people aren't going to get, it's, it's disinformation campaigns. Money is funneling right into disinformation online where people don't know what to get upset about you know people are using hashtag like save our children and not realizing it's like part of like this ridiculous conspiracy theory you know like they don't they don't even know what they're even like ingesting anymore so you know even though the internet like years ago was a place to be able to like connect people and provide information now there's just so much disinformation that that is people don't even know what to believe or what to act on because there every kind of truth is relative now you know there's no hard truth it's all relative so that is the number one barrier i would say disinformation yeah wow liz i think you really really brought us back full circle recognizing that ebb and flow that at first social media and the internet brought us a little bit closer together and allowed us to connect beyond geographical location and now it's taken off and there are so many platforms and there's so much information that we're no longer connected we've gone back into these silos either by you know which platform we are on what algorithms are being put in place to show us different types of information our age categories everything and those funnels of information you know once you try to dig outside of them there's so much and it's so hard to tell what's real and what's just a hashtag that's been shared a million times over and I think that's an important distinction to make when we're looking back at the evolution 
the internet and how it's changed our sense of connection to each other and that sense of belonging that we can create around issues or locations or other aspects of politics. My next guest is John Howe, a millennial like myself and Liz, but with a very different, I might even go as far as to say opposite experience. John was born and raised around the state capital culture of Sacramento, California, and this upbringing has instilled in him a passion for policy and a certain belief that the purpose of democracy is to improve the lives of everyone in society. He's now a student seeking a dual degree in business and public administration. Welcome, John. Why don't you share a little bit about yourself? My name is John Howe. I am uh, from Sacramento, California. I grew up around the capital politics and was just seeing that um, all around me as a kid. Um, I went to the University of Washington in Seattle where I studied political science. Um, and that, once again, kept kind of honing in on my um, political just mind and junkiness and affiliation. I'm constantly reading the news and constantly learning about anything politics. Just to me, it's so interesting. Some people like reality TV. I like politics. You know, to me, that is like the fun of it. And I think it's also something really beautiful about it, the change that it can, you know, make and the involvement from communities and activists. So growing up in Sacramento, right, it sounds like you, you were introduced at a young age to the idea of politics. What is your earliest memory of, of sort of coming into this? That's, you know, that's interesting. Um, so both my parents worked at the Capitol. My mom was a chief of staff throughout a career. And then my dad ran campaigns. He, uh, got a congressman elected here and was a chief of staff in the United States um, Congress and then came back here, worked in the Capitol. And uh, once he kind of reached old age, eventually became a lobbyist. But as a kid, I was, both my parents were working. I remember growing up in the Capitol. Um, one of my memories is actually, I can hear my mom's heels walking down like the marble like floor of the hallways of the Capitol. And I just was there all the time. I remember I was friends with all her, you know, like coworkers and staff and, you know, members and assembly members and stuff. So it was a very big community that I was just kind of like, to me, that's what it was. And it was like, yeah, people my parents worked with, but they were also like all their best friends. Um, the Sacramento community around the Capitol is I think very interesting and very prominent. Um, and there's a lot of really amazing people in it. So that was some of my first memories, just kind of being as being a kid running around the Capitol. I remember like going up to the dome of the Capitol and like getting all these cool things that I thought was special because my parents worked there, but I think anyone could do it. How would you, how would you describe, uh, if you could maybe pick just a couple of characteristics, um, it sounds like of, of politicians uh, growing up. Yeah, it was, um, it was fun. I mean, it was cool. I mean, it's not like it was, um, you know, it's not like it was all politicians, you know, because there's so much staff in the Capitol, but I'm still really close to a lot of them. My, um, you know, one thing that's to me is so amazing about it, both my parents passed when I was really young. And so to me, what I really saw the community is even more is when all those people came together and gathered around that and just the people they know and the differences they made from 
you know, like just people they had met throughout the capital. Um, and it really is this strong community seeing those people come together. So whether it was a mayor or an assemblyman or, you know, um, a member of Congress or something, there was people that I think when you just spend 30 years working in the capital, you kind of get to know everyone in some ways. Um, and so they knew someone in every division or every department just because they had been around it so long. And so it was cool to see that community and it never felt like, oh, like, whoa, who's this? It was just like, oh, this is someone who does their job and they're my mom's friend and they do something that's good and important. I have to say, it's it's probably not a surprise to you to know that this experience that you're describing is unique. That, you know, I think if we were to say, walk down the street, take a poll of, of random people and see who knew the first and last names of all their representatives at the state or local level, that most people wouldn't be able to answer that. And I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be on a personal first name basis, having known them for decades, met all their children, you know, known them personally, that type of relationship with my representatives. Have you thought about how that impacts your thoughts today in, in how that shaped your beliefs around government, how it should run, or even just the level of yeah, trust um, that you have in the you know, people I think who a lot do of those work for government? Things um, still carry with me just the belief that government can make people's lives better and it should. Um, and I want to be a part of a democracy is helping lift people up instead of putting them down. And I think that is but my ideal democracy, there can somewhat be this like ivory tower or, you know, kind of restrictiveness to like, you know, what, what it means. Um, I think some people in even Sacramento look at the Capitol and they're like, oh, I know what that does, that big building, but it's kind of mysterious what happens in there. If there was a way to bring people in um, to democracy more beyond just voting, but really showing what government can do. And I think educating on successful policies would be, you know, a huge, huge advantage. You know, there's so many amazing policies out there. And I think if people knew that and recognized, and if there was, you know, a history course um, or every class every year had some sort of like, where you learned about like, oh, this is what the New Deal did. And this is what this cigarette tax did. And this is what, you know, whatever, you know, the GI bill and all those sorts of things made, you know, other things, but they made homes affordable and all that. If people had, you know, just some examples of what government did, effect it had. I think, I think there's an extreme power in just experiencing what I experienced as a child and talking about government and policy and elections and all those things. As a great example, I remember every, every year, um, before school during an election, going with my parents and watching them vote. Um, it was in like, you know, our neighbor's garage down the street. Um, and to me that had this like amazing power of like, whoa, okay, people are involved and like you see what it means, you know, it's not hard. Um, voting isn't difficult. People do way harder things every day. Sometimes grocery shopping is more of a hassle than voting. So it's, you know, being engaged and conversating in really simple ways. And I would encourage to the next generation um, and passing that along is to just increase engagement at a very minimal scale. And I think it could really help with that education that we spoke about earlier. What, uh, what do you think is the hardest 
way of engagement? What's the hardest thing? Um, really easy. What's, what's the one that's really hard? I think it's the intimidation level and politics is intimidating. I think it's intimidating to, for a lot of people to speak their voice. I think it can be intimidating to find out actually what you believe in, you know? Sometimes I don't have a complete view and it can be like, okay, well, I don't know everything. Should I be giving my opinion? Um, or how do I engage in something that I don't know everything about? You know, it's like, okay, I want to go out to a rally or something um, for some sort of cause, but I don't know if I believe in everything they say or if I believe in, you know, if I don't even know enough. And so I think it can be intimidating to read the news and I think it can be intimidating to people who vote and think, oh, am I making the wrong decision or should I only vote about the one person I know about? And I think for a lot of people, like we've kept kind of saying a similar message is politics is this big, faraway thing that doesn't come into their daily lives. And I think for a lot of people that is intimidating and they just kind of see it as something that's out there and it's in the news and it's there, but it's not inside. And I think stepping your foot into that um, or even dipping your toe in can be a scary, a scary thought. Yeah, I um, the first thing that most people say is, I don't know if I'll have anything interesting to say or if I even know enough to like do this, but uh, like I'll do this interview with you. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they express some kind of like, just so you know, I don't know what's happening. You know, that kind yeah. of thing. And yeah. you have, you've shared something today that I think is pretty profound that you've recognized that you, you clearly have a strong sense of belonging to politics, that you, you feel accepted and yeah. that you belong in this conversation. And I don't think that exists for most people. And yeah. it's, it's amazing that you've recognized that. Yeah. And I, and honestly, I, that's, um, it's from the way I was growing up, you know, it's that advantage of being in that system. I think if yeah. I, you know, if my parents worked in the private sector, I would probably feel the same way. And it's easy to say, I don't know, or I'm, you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to step on, you know, go too far. I don't know what to say, but that's what democracy is. Everyone belongs in it. That's the beautiful yeah. thing about it. You're born to belonging in democracy. And so it's okay to not know everything, you know, although it's intimidating, it's more important to be engaged and learn along the way. No one ever expects you to know everything when you start something, but um, democracy really is something that everyone can be a part of. And I think they should be, and that's something you can pass along. Wow, that's a, that's a wonderful thought to end on. Um, I really like the way that you just phrased that. I, uh, I love this conversation. I really appreciate it. I see this is the sort of stuff. I mean, it's kind of not just policy, but it's just, you know, what, what government is and what democracy is. And I, I love that sort of conversation. I just want to say a huge thank you to John and Liz for sharing their stories for this project. When I started Alt-G and started really digging into exploring these topics, one thing I wanted to explore within my own generation and across others was this idea that maybe we were missing opportunities when it comes to inviting young people into civic life. My own experience was not the most positive. I don't know how many of you will remember this, but um, 
There was a certain period of time where millennials were not very favorably looked upon. There was a time when uh, there were all these news articles coming out saying that my generation was responsible for just a whole host of issues in society. We were responsible for killing the napkin industry, the fast food industry, that we had received too many participation trophies and it had ruined us as people. And that in part, that had helped to cause the opioid epidemic in the United States. And while many of these articles were seen as funny and silly to myself and my friends, there was still a really clear message coming out that millennials couldn't be trusted, that we were a threat, that we shouldn't be allowed or encouraged to go out and participate in civic life. Um, and I even had people in my community come and ask me to explain why my generation was so terrible. And they were legitimately threatened that, you know, millennials were going to come and destroy something that they loved. And what I really appreciate about Liz and John's stories is that it shows the huge diversity of experience that can happen within just one generation. That some of us weren't engaged at all. Some were actively discouraged from participating. And then there are others who were given guidance, role models, and shown all of the resources they needed to really start engaging in democratic life. These stories really showcase those missed opportunities. And they can show us that it's not too late to invite people into this civic process. There are real systemic barriers out there that serve to intimidate people. And even though we haven't really talked about those very explicitly in this episode, I do wanna acknowledge and recognize that those are there. And while those barriers can sometimes feel so overwhelming to think about how to tackle all of them, I think there might be a couple of ideas in these stories that you can take back into your own life. These notions of belonging and a belief in democracy start at a much earlier age than we realize. So I have a challenge for you listening to this today. Take a moment, sit, and think about all the things in your life that have helped you to feel connected or intimidated in participating in civic life. And use those to maybe help guide you and the people around you to invite people to participate more. If you're interested in learning more or listening to future Alt-G podcasts, please visit our website, altgpodcast.com, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Music and the creation of Alt-G comes from my phenomenal brother, Daniel Johnson, and a little help from Epidemic Sound. You can also follow us on Instagram at Alt-G Podcast. Thanks for listening.